Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allow us to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hello. Hey, Aaron. Just lovely to see you guys. Absolutely lovely to see you. Aaron, who'd you talk to for the uh, show this week? This week on the show, I talked to Peter Shamshari, who is one of the hosts of the 5v4 podcast, which is about the Supreme Court. Um, I guess I was interested in talking to him. It's like uh, they've done a lot of episodes. They're really interesting. It's kind of a hangout show. As opposed to, I would say, the majority of the podcasters we've had on here are people doing kind of more serial reported narratives. They are reacting in real time to the uh, decisions of the Supreme Court, as well as going into the history of the Supreme Court and previous decisions, which are building on current decisions. Peter is a lawyer. He was uh, an anonymous lawyer when the show started, ended up losing his job as a lawyer as a result of doing the show. So I kind of wanted to talk to him also about like turning the thing that you're really into and maybe is your profession into a weekly chat show and what that entails, what it means for your life and what it's like doing this like over time as you know, you, you go through multiple years of the Supreme court circuit run out of the initial allotment of things to talk about and need to figure out what else your audience wants to hear about. Certainly a uh, a rich time to be talking about the Supreme Court, although the anonymous podcaster thing makes me wonder when, when Evan is going to reveal his true identity. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a longstanding conspiracy theory about Evan that, I, um, that this is the best time to air it ever. So Evan did an article for Wired many years ago. How, how long ago was this? 15, 10, 15 years ago? Ten, uh, 12, 12, 13. 12 yeah. years ago, yeah. where Evan disappeared in America and then changed his appearance and people all tried to find him using various clues. He, he attempted to uh, slip into anonymity. Do we know if the same Evan came back from that experience and left? Because <laughs> when he was found, I believe he was bald and there may have been a hair 
change. Mm. I'm just saying, I have never spoken to one of Evan's close family members about whether the same person who left came back. I can't comment on this. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this off air. Max, see uh, if you can do a little investigation into Evan's social security number. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll start looking into it. Any any th- any concrete evidence is what I'm looking for. At the very least, the next time I see him and have the opportunity, I'm going to shave his head and see what's going on with this <laughs> yeah, hair. Yeah, for solidarity for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Peter Shamsheri. Welcome to the Long Forum Podcast, uh, Peter Shamshari of the 5-4 Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Before we start, I want to just sort of ground people who haven't uh, listened to the podcast what kind of a show 5-4 is, because we have had a lot of podcasters on this show, but I would say more from the kind of reported podcasts miniseries angle. Mm-hmm. And this is what I like to call a hangout show. It's yeah. a it's a vibing with friends kind of show, and um, I'm a big fan of vibing with friends podcasts. I think sometimes it gets kind of ignored in the face of the kind of uh, investigative we uh, cleared someone of a murder kind of podcasts. So maybe a place to start with you was like before you decided to start a podcast about the Supreme Court. What was your relationship to? podcasts as a listener so me and my co-hosts were actually on a very like short-lived panel podcast uh a few years ago called mike dicta and uh that you know lasted about as long as any podcast that technically has like 15 contributors could ever last, which is like six 15 months. contributors. My goodness. Yeah, it was a panel show, you know, so we'd have oh, a, we'd cycle God. people in. Um, Everything and, about that is my nightmare in case you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's tough to manage, I'd say, and proved so. So five, four was not technically my first podcast. I actually didn't really listen to a ton of podcasts until I started doing five to four and only then because I wanted to see if other people were good at podcasting in ways that I wasn't. Mm. But I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was an infrequent listener to various podcasts that I kind of loosely consumed news that way, but I wasn't like a, you know, a big aficionado or anything like that. So having had this experience of attempting to get 15 people on a podcast, getting into (laughs) five to four, What was the chemistry like between you and the other hosts? And like, what was it like talking for the first time in this sort of setup and trying to figure out like, what's the tone of this show? How do we interact with each other? It took more than a couple of tries to really mesh. Yeah. I still have like a vivid memory of the first minute of the first recording, just looking at their faces while I talked and being like, man, we are we are fucking this up. This is going poorly. But then, you know, things just sort of evolved and and you sort of over time stop picturing the audience in my experience. And once you stop picturing the audience, things started to sort of jibe a little bit between us. And, you know, our sort of we're, we're all friends. And so we have a sort of natural chemistry, I'd like to think. And uh, eventually it comes through. And were you friends before you started doing the show together? Yeah, although now we are much closer than we were. Was 
everyone on the same page about what the show should be like, like where did the sort of editorial thrust for like, this is what we should be doing every week on the show come from? I think that sort of came together over time. We had a general shared sensibility. Mm. The sort of mission of the show was initially relatively simple. It was sort of like, look, we're left-leaning lawyers and that's not a perspective you get very often. And we're going to sort of just show that perspective through the lens of like one Supreme Court case at a time. Mm. And I think we all sort of knew that we were also doing a less formal show, a show where we're just sort of chatting. You know, there was sort of a shared understanding that we were going to be talking about the law the way that we talk about the law as friends, which is Hmm. a little less doctrinal, a little more like, yeah, I think Antonin Scalia is a dumbass, you know, and I think that that was sort of part of the premise. It was the the sort of tone of the show was built into our understanding of what we were doing. In focusing on the Supreme Court, my guess is that the day-to-day of being a lawyer is not necessarily like the same issues as come up when you talk about the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. How does your sort of experience as lawyers interact with talking about some of these large national issues that come up and and what do you feel like sort of the value of someone who has this kind of professional background is is in talking about it yeah there's not that much overlap between our day-to-day work and what gets discussed at the supreme court it's there's a vocabulary that we have just as lawyers that helps us sort of interpret it but Outside of a couple of niche topics, you know, I was an employment lawyer. Rhiannon was a criminal uh, defense attorney and Michael used to do securities law. And, you know, all all of that sort of came together. We each had our little niches. And so there were areas where we had levels of expertise. But for the most part, we were just people who engaged with it casually. You know, we engaged with the Supreme Court the way we engage with politics And that was sort of part of the angle is that, you know, academics and journalists are like a little too in the weeds on this stuff. And someone who is coming at it from a more grounded perspective could offer something valuable. And you chose at the beginning of the show to be anonymous. I believe you and one of the other hosts both went into it, not with your real names. Yeah. Tell me about that decision, not in retrospect, but how it felt as someone who this podcast wasn't your whole life, you weren't necessarily all in with it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, at the time I didn't really view it as like a super discreet choice to be anonymous as much as I was like, well, why would I give my full name on this like hobby I have? (laughs) Right. It's right. Right. It wasn't, um, you know, it, it it was a it was a side project. I was we, I was you know having some fun with my friends, and um, it it wasn't like a choice I thought about really. I, it was just sort of like, yeah, why you know why would I say anything other than my first name? I mean, at the time, I should be you know 
uh, Frank, at the time I had a uh, day job, which I no longer have because I eventually got fired for doing the podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> the, um, you know, so I was sort of like in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather not have this be like Googleable so that my boss would come across it and then ask me questions I didn't feel like answering. Right. I didn't really think of it as a career when we started. And frankly, I didn't really think of it as a career until I got fired from my day job <laughs> when it suddenly became a career. Yeah. But over time, as the show got more popular, it was like, well, should we throw our names on it or or what? And I, I think we all sort of figured why. I, I mean, none of us are journalists or anything like that, right? So like, yeah. there would be no great reveal where it's like, oh, it's it's that Michael who's doing five to four, right? I think that we all sort of felt that like, us not having any real connections to legal media, to academia, et cetera, was sort of, I don't want to quite say a selling point, but it was, it, it sort of meshes with our perspective on the show. You know, I think we sort of viewed ourselves as having a bit of an outsider's perspective going in. And that sort of aligns with the fact that we're just a bunch of people who are like vaguely interested in the Supreme Court and decided to start talking about it. So you went in with this identity at some point, your employer became aware that you were doing this podcast on the side and decided to fire you. Mm -hmm. At that point, you kind of went all in with, um, the show, like as like, it's not a side hobby. Yeah. What, like, what was the change for you once you started to feel like this was like a job and not a side hobby? And um, did it change the uh, style of the show? Did it change your relationship to the show? I don't think it changed the style of the show, but definitely changed my relationship to the show. Luckily, it took my employer like two and a half years to figure this out. So it allowed the show to get off the ground. And, you know, it was enough that I could like float myself financially without any income from a, a job. Hmm. So, you know, I think what it allowed me to do was just like think more holistically about what exactly I'm doing with my life now and, you know, what else we could do with the show. And frankly, I mean, we haven't done a ton more, but we've sort of been dipping our toes in different things like, well, what if what if we, you know, did a little bit of streaming in certain in certain uh, situations and stuff like that, stuff that I just wouldn't have had time for, huh. you know, when I had a job. And it, it has allowed me, I think, to be a little more serious about the work in that, like, I'm not getting home from a nine to five and cramming a Supreme Court case into my brain. I can sort of think about it and, you know, take notes over the course of a couple of days and stuff like that. So I, I would like to think that it's helped me be a little more thoughtful about the substance. Let's talk about that sort of prep. So there's stuff happening at the Supreme Court, not all the time, but, you know, during its how many months of the year is the Supreme Court in session? It's October through June, generally. October through. So it's a, it's a good season. It's like a school school year's yeah. worth yeah. of uh, material. And you're coming out and planning a show. How do you take sort of what's going on with the Supreme Court at that time, plan for a show and execute it? And how is that different Like when it's like some kind of mediocre ruling that no one's very interested in versus like a... Dobbs kind of ruling that's like top of the news cycle. Well, the original concept of the show, and we stick to this to a large degree, was we're just going to sort of 
pick cases from history. Um, Uh, Yeah, we started with Bush v. Gore and Citizens United. And, um, you know, our our project was not tethered to the news cycle per se, but things would happen and we would pick them up on like almost like an emergency basis. You know, we started doing like one of our first 10 episodes was a quote unquote emergency episode where, you know, it was 2020 and some election case came down and we hopped on it. So now we're sort of a mix. We will, um, we will stay on top of things. We still try to avoid being super, you know, tied into the news cycle where a case drops and we feel like we need to explain it to our listeners in the next 48 hours. I think when you do that, you end up recycling the basic talking points from every major news outlet that get sent out about the case and it's not really worth it anyway. But our goal has always been to sort of broadly analyze the court's ideology across different time periods, for example, not necessarily to explain exactly what is is happening at the court right now. But that said, we've sort of shifted focus as things have spiced up at the court in the last couple of years. And we will spend time, especially in cases like Dobbs, like Dobbs, we did an emergency episode for. But, you know, there are headlines we think are worth jumping on, but they are sort of few and far in between. I was listening to like the episode you did about uh, Clarence Thomas and uh, Harlan Crow. Yeah. Crowgate, I think yeah. that's referred to. And I think we called it the Thomas Crow. The Affair. Thomas Crow Affair. So, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. If you're naming the episodes, I, I fully approve of, of the <laughs> effort being put into episode naming is a difficult thing. It is. Yeah. So I'm interested in a story like that, which I'm going to say, I'm going to put that the spice meters going off. Mm-hmm. Unusual amount of spice for a Supreme Court story. And there's two sort of roles for that show. One is what happened. Like I'm a person who doesn't follow this super closely. I may not know sort of what has already been reported about this story, who Clarence Thomas is, who Mm. his wife is, who Harlan Crow is. So a lot of back material. And then there's commenting on that and what it means for the Supreme Court, what it says about other Supreme Court justices. How do you sort of think about balancing these sort of like recap first commentary stuff on the show. I think it's important, especially with law where it's, it can get relatively complex to like, make sure that you're giving background. Yeah. It, it is super easy to assume that your audience knows what you're talking about. And I think when it comes to this sort of thing, you're almost always wrong when you make that assumption. I feel like, I I sort of remind myself to hold the audience's hand at times. And like, yes, the diehard listeners and the lawyers who are Supreme Court watchers will already know what you're talking about. And you'll be a little bit redundant in their minds. But 80 percent of the audience is going to at least be glad you went over it again. Yeah. And so I always make sure we do. Our value add in our minds has always been that we will then provide a much less filtered analysis than 99% of legal media. Mm -hmm. So like we will tell you the background to the Clarence Thomas story. And then if we were some mainstream outlet, we would probably end with some wishy-washy, well, 
maybe you could interpret it this way, but also that way. And then that's a wrap. And in our minds, it's our, our value add is being able to say like, this was for sure illegal and uh, super shady. And, and you should probably think so too. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I've done podcasts myself about things that I'm really interested in. And one thing I've noticed that I think can be a little counterintuitive is you want to do podcasts with people who are like-minded and come to these ideas from a similar place as you. But there's actually something kind of boring about that. Like, actually, there's a reason that like TV shows are like crossfire and or it's like, you know, sports right. shows. You never want to have the, the same take as the other guy on the sports show. Coming to this as, as you self-described, left-wing lawyers, mm -hmm. where do you find places to disagree with each other? And I guess also in a larger sense, like how and when do you form these takes? Like, Do you know what you think going in or are you finding it in real time? So I think we rarely disagree with each other. We will generally have a quick prep call before an episode to just sketch mm the basic topics we want to talk about. And if there's disagreement, 99% of the time it gets hashed out there. Mm. 
I, I think that each of us is like smart and thoughtful in a way distinct from each of the, the others. And so you get these sort of like different slices of perspectives and we all sort of agree with one another, but I also don't think that I could just sort of come up with the perspective that Rhiannon has or that Michael has on the fly if I tried. I think that while we don't have that sort of debate quality within the show, a lot of our listeners are absorbing mainstream legal media consistently. And so there's this sort of implicit opposition to that, where people hear us as being a countervailing voice in this broader discussion. And I think that's why it sort of works, despite the fact that we're not, you know, prodding at each other all the time. Do you who like who listens to the show? Like what, what how much insight do you have like who your audience is? Young lawyers and law students are a big chunk of the audience and they're certainly like our harder core audience. Young people who are very interested in politics would be, mm-hmm. you know, would sort of round it out. I think that's I don't know that it's like the plurality of our listeners, but that's our like single biggest demographic for sure. I I think that they are in general, bored with like mainstream media and old media when it comes to politics coverage. I think if you look at like critiques of mainstream media about it's sort of like their desire to hit on both sides of the argument, for example, even in situations where people feel like that's counterproductive. Legal media has a lot of those bad tendencies, but just more intense um, because of the nature of law. I think a lot of journalists find it hard to like take a position or to sort of like tip their hand about what they actually believe because so much of the discourse around how law should operate is about neutrality and um, the general perspective that the law is nonpartisan, non-ideological. So I think the the result of that is media coverage that is sort of like particularly lacking in those regards. And that's where we sort of swoop in and get the uh, frustrated, disaffected youths who are annoyed by that coverage. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually Leon who says this at the beginning of the episode, but he gets a description of the show and it's something, something why the Supreme Court sucks or something like that. Yeah. A podcast and about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Yeah. Ex- exactly. And so right away you're like, okay, we're in like a slightly different zone here. Right. And right. Where I see the like that zag against what like little I know about the mainstream coverage is I think generally the mainstream is pro institution. And if it's criticizing, it's like in the case of Clarence Thomas would be like, oh, well, look at how this person weakened the institution Mm -hmm. through their personal conduct, the institution, which is good. And I think the show comes from a standpoint of, well, also, what if the institution is bad? Right. I I think that's right. Um, And, you know, I think we've outright said we don't have any interest in the maintenance of the legitimacy of institutions we don't like, you know, and if we view the court as a reactionary institution and we're not reactionaries, then, you know, yes, I I actually kind of want to see its legitimacy undermined. Um, and I, I think we're relatively frank about that. And I think a lot of like young left leaning people who follow the law find that refreshing. 
do you feel like there's like an educational element to the show of sort of like showing lawyer, young lawyers, like a way to be? Yeah, I didn't, I don't think we set out to do anything along those lines, but we hear it from law students all the time that we were sort Mm -hmm. of like this supplementary perspective that helped them like digest constitutional law classes. So I definitely think that that's part of it. It is a perspective that's pretty much not taught in law schools outside of, you know, a few niche seminars with like the weirdest hippie professor that you've ever had. And so I think they find it unique. And I would like to think that A, it helps people sort of cope with law school, which is like this weird, high stress environment. And then you sort of layer on top of it, the sort of like ideology of law, which a lot of people find unsettling. And I would also like to think that it makes you a uh, nominally better lawyer, although probably not that much better. I mean, it probably like, depends better in what way. Like, uh, th- there's a lot of different ways you could or could not be a better yeah, lawyer. Yeah, uh, maybe a more thoughtful lawyer, uh, although I would imagine it probably doesn't impact your client's outcomes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I was reading a few articles about 5 to 4, um, including the Times article that uh-huh. uh, Reggie wrote, who, who's been on this show. And... Um, I understand. I guess that article may have sort of led to your employer finding out who you were. That is my best guess. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> what sort of struck me while I was reading the articles is that when you run a, a show like this as a business, uh, particularly in the sort of Patreon Substack model way, mm-hmm. people want to publish like exactly how much money you're making <laughs> off of it every month, which is a weird thing that doesn't exist in any other form of like getting paid in America. Yeah. Tell me about living in public in that kind of way and and how it affects wanting to do a show like this, how you run a show like this. So, I mean, first of all, we could hide the monthly income on Patreon if we felt like it, you know, it's sort of common among left-leaning podcasts to keep that up for transparency reasons, I think. And we do it more or less for that reason. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think you're right. People do seem to be fascinated by this just because you put the number out there. You know, there are plenty of podcasts making money off of ad revenue. And when they get interviewed, it, it's not like a topic or anything. But every time we get press off the show for any reason, it's pretty likely that someone's going to bring up the money. Yeah. Um, and people do tend to people, I think, overestimate how much each of us make because, you know, we, you know, we've got Prologue Projects behind us, which is uh, a small team of, you know, we probably have uh, between two and three people over there working on the show at any given time. We've got a producer and then we've got the three hosts. And so, you know, I think people see the money and just divide it by three. And I'm like, no, come on. We, you know, we pay our producer. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think that, um, I mean, I. I have no problem leaving it up there. It's not, you know, it's not like we're making a a million dollars a year off this or anything like that. It's, um, it's sort of weird because I actually think that the ecosystem for podcasts from like a money perspective is super awkward. Um, if you're a small podcast, you're almost certainly putting in a ton of hours relative to the money you're getting. And it's only once you're like relatively popular that you start to hit a point where they're actually like financially viable and the Patreon model, that sort of like subscription model is one of the few things that works for mid-sized podcasts. Like we tried to survive as a podcast with 
ad revenue and it just doesn't work. So it's sort of interesting. You, you know, as soon as you latch on to the only functional model for a podcast our size, all of a sudden people start talking about the money. The alternative is making none and doing a bunch of work for it, as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, I think that that it's a, a double-edged sword that applies to a lot of media where it's like, you're sort of damned any possible way you do this stuff. I've always been very uncomfortable with the um, Patreon model because like in the case of this show, you know, we're dealing with writers who work for publications that themselves are hard up for funds. It feels weird to be like, no, 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 give money to this podcast about writing (laughs) rather than just pay for the writing. At least lawyers, like the people who are listening to your show have some um, well-renumerated career somewhere in their future, potentially. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that our I don't know that our uh, demographic necessarily does because they're probably like, <laughs> you know, half public defenders. But I, ac- I actually have, have felt like fans of the show, people who are listeners, and I think maybe young people generally tend to not really be judgmental about it. It's not like mm-hmm. an exploitative model or anything where, you know, if you want to subscribe to the show, you give us five bucks and uh, you get premium episodes and some other stuff. And, and that's that. I think it's like, it's often more fascinating for people who are maybe a little bit older and for whom this is like a new model uh, and mm-hmm. that they're not really accustomed to. And they're sort of fascinated that there's like a way to make money through any sort of media, you know, yeah. and that's why they like to talk about it, because it just sort of seems uh, unusual to them. Well, and I think that the minute you do that, you also take what is a one to many audience of the podcaster and many listeners and you basically create a community and the community is people who pay for the show. People get the bonus episodes. And I do think when you start to thinking about what you're doing in terms of a community rather than a single listener, it can slightly rearrange what you think like a good job is, I guess. Yeah. And I do think that in our case, especially like we are probably we are relatively successful on Patreon relative to our number of listeners. Like we have, we have a lot of listeners, you know, we're a relatively popular podcast, but you know, our uh, conversion rate or whatever Patreon might call it is like relatively high because I think we have a big chunk of our listeners who want a community like that, who, you know, find our perspective refreshing, want to find like-minded people. And so they join up for that reason. What is it like trying to do more content for those listeners? Like sometimes I feel like there's like a slight contradiction between the way to do the best content is often to do less content, but the demands of a subscription model, particularly when it's just recurring every month and you're supposed to do the main thing and the bonus stuff leads you to do more content. Yeah. For us, it's relatively simple in that our basic format is cases are free content and anything outside of that will be bonus content. We've started to deviate from that a little more than we used to. But generally speaking, it's kind of simple because there are all sorts of like non-case or all, there, there are all sorts of topics that are not tied to a given case at any at one time that we want to discuss. And so we just sort of mm-hmm. bucket that as like, well, let's let's do a premium episode about that. 
Um, so for us, I think it's actually relatively simple. We don't have to think super hard about this stuff. You'll sometimes hit a hit like a creativity wall and then you do a Q&A episode. But for the most part, it, it, it actually is pretty natural. You're in the over 100 episodes camp. Now that you've you've got this multi-year sort of backlog of having talked to each other, how does the sort of intertextuality of the show where you're calling back to things you talked about in previous episodes and building on this stuff work? In different ways. There are some things where I pretend that the listener has never listened to a 5-4 mm. episode before, especially like doctrinal stuff. Like I will explain a relatively simple legal doctrine every time it comes up on the show, even if I've explained it a dozen times before, because A, I think people forget, and B, I think you have to sort of assume that people are listening to like one out of every three or four episodes, uh, and otherwise you'll lose people. But there, there is sort of a an arc to the way we talk about a lot of this stuff and the way that we conceptualize like the goals of the show. In the beginning, it was very simple. Like we're coming in with a different political perspective than you're used to, and we're using the Supreme Court's decisions to sort of like as the lens. And over time, it sort of evolved where like at first you're talking about how the court is ideological and political, but then you've sort of made that point and you start to explain the ways in which those politics manifest and sort of map those trends. I think that has been a way in which the the podcast has built on itself over time where you are like reading a certain type of analysis for example from I don't know, from Clarence Thomas from Sam Alito whoever and you start to relate that back to things that they've said in the past things that we've discussed in the past and things that are happening maybe in in like modern day politics to sort of draw links and connections in people's minds. That's something we weren't doing in the beginning that we are doing a lot more now and has sort of built on itself over time. Yeah, I think this is the reason why the topic that you've chosen, the Supreme Court, alongside, say, politics and sports are amongst the best chat topics conceivable because there's constantly new things happening and the new things that happen always have their roots in the things that happened right. before. I've talked to other people who've tried to start these kinds of shows on topics that just didn't have the right like cadence for a weekly happens on a clock kind of uh, uh, content cycle. I think that, I mean, that's part of the magic of being able to just pull on historical cases is mm -hmm. that we can sort of dive in and out of the news cycle as we as we wish uh, and see fit. And that that means that sometimes we'll just have a news cycle episode and sometimes we will do uh, an old case that sort of like touches on something modern and be able to weave it in. That flexibility makes the show easy in a lot of ways, just as as someone who's trying to conceptualize what an what an episode looks like. When you do one of those episodes that looks back on a case from the past, like what's your media diet for prepping? How do you get your brain ready to talk about this for an hour or two? So now we have first now we have a, a researcher who helps us out and we're like we'll pull like law review articles, like academic articles mm. about the case. So first I do all the nerdy shit and just sort of like 
absorb everything that I think the academics are saying about it. That way I have that foundation. And then I think it depends on the case, but let's say it's an environmental law case, then there are like simple ways to approach it. You want to think about the immediate impact, you know, okay, this law was struck down. What, what flowed directly from that? And then what are parallels that you can draw between this case and either other cases or modern political discussions, et cetera. I always look at it like that, right? You have the sort of on the ground, what's the impact of this right now? And then is this similar to a political debate that we're all having? Is this, you know, something that was sort of a vestige of its time or what's the best way to look at it? And then you sort of approach the episode based on that. And how has your relationship with the co-hosts evolved over time? Like as this has become a bigger part of your lives, like in some ways, like doing something like this, particularly on a model like this really requires everyone to be on the same page, free on the same day at the same time. Yeah. The hardest part is for sure, just scheduling, <laughs> just the th you know three people trying to schedule it. We are like very good friends. My wedding is later this year and they're both in it to some degree. Uh, Rhiannon is, uh, will be marrying us and Michael will be one of my groomsmen. So, you know, we're, we're close. This is not like a purely professional relationship. I don't, I don't really think it would have worked if it was a purely professional relationship. So I don't know. We've, we've always just like gotten along and that smooths everything over at the end of the day. Like you can, you can argue with your friend about scheduling and then get back to it at when you need to. Um, but yeah. if it's just a business partner, I feel like resentments build up over time. And that's, you know, that's just not how it's been for us. So the show started through Prologue Projects, which is um, Leon uh, Nafok, who did um, Slow Burn. He's been on this show, done lots of good works. Uh, company with, uh, I think, Andrew Parsons is the other person behind it. How did that relationship look when it started? And what is your sort of feeling on it now that you've sort of transitioned from the hobbyist to um, full-timer economies of scale? You know, we were always sort of like partnered up with them. It was never very like, we're working for you or they're working for us. I mean, you know, this started with Leon DMing me on Twitter and being like, I like your tweets. Let me know if you have any podcast ideas. And at the time, I happened to be brainstorming this podcast with Michael and Rihanna. It would have 100% never gotten off the ground. So I've always conceptualized it as, as very much a partnership. And, you know, there, there's there's always like adversarial negotiations about money in these situations because it's inherently adversarial. But, you know, I, I think I think we, you know, we did that first year. No one made any money. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, re it's really simple when that happens. Yeah. Um, before we got the Patreon off the ground, there was just no money in this. Yeah. Um, you know, we uh, got a little bit of like upfront money from uh, for ads from like Westwood One, who is like, you know, basically a conservative psycho network. You know, we're trying to find other partnerships that didn't really work out. And um then we thought, all right, you know, let's let's do the Patreon thing. And that ended up working out um, better than any of the like ad revenue partnerships could have. Because, again, like if you're a midsize podcast, the ad revenue, uh, the ad revenue model is just tough to make work, especially for a large team. Now that you're splitting up that pie, 
is there a discussion like, hey, that historical researcher sounds good, but like my rent's going up this year. I don't know, guys. Like I'd rather do it myself or, you know. Sort of. I mean, it, in a, I think, you know, none of us are particularly grubby about the the money. And I think there's now enough where like, if everyone yeah. is just level headed about it, like it's totally fine. And paying a few, a uh, few hundred bucks to uh, a researcher here and there is not going to actually hurt anyone. You like, you'll be fine. You know, I, I think that generally speaking, we have a good sense of what would make our lives a lot easier, you know, as hosts uh, and on the production side too. Something like a researcher was like a no brainer for us. It's just, you know, to have someone be able to take three hours of searching out of your week uh, and compile it for you. I, in my mind, I was like, I, I would, yeah. I, I, if I was going to cut costs, I'd probably cut them elsewhere. Let's put it that way. For someone listening who is like sort of passionate about something the way that you are passionate about the Supreme court mm -hmm. and is thinking about trying to turn it into a podcast, maybe with like some like-minded friends who feel the same way. What advice would you have? What, what made this work and not be one of the podcasts that stopped at episode seven? You've got to wait for Leon Nafok to DM you on Twitter. <laughs> that is my experience. No, I, I mean, I, that's tongue, tongue in cheek, but also sort of my answer is partner up with someone who knows how to, on a podcast. I mean, I think that a big part of why the show works is because the hosts did not have to do the initial lift of learning how to produce a podcast, which is not easy, nor is it something you can do super quickly unless you want to do it terribly. Well, so let me, let me drill in there a little bit. What did Leon do early on that you would have not known how to do on your own? None of us have like extensive editing experience, for example. None of us knew much about sound other than like, you know, get some blankets around your microphone or something like that yeah. to dampen. Uh, and I think maybe most importantly on the substance, the first few episodes were like a chore because we had people who know what a podcast should sound like, know what conversational flow sounds good to a listener be like, what are you saying here? You know, like, and you, if you get that feedback enough, you get those notes over time, you know, what sounds good. You know how to um, say something concisely uh, a little more naturally. Uh, I think those sort of substantive notes are what helped keep the show going. And, you know, now we can sort of sit down, record an episode and it won't be, it's not like, you know, it's not like the beginning. In the beginning, we would sit down and record for three hours and it would get boiled down to one. And now we're probably recording for, uh, you know, an hour 10 and getting boiled down to one. I don't think we get there without someone being honest, like saying you need to say this better. Right. And, um, as you got better, like, do you still like give notes on the show? Like, is there still sort of a, like what went well, what didn't go well? Yeah. There, there's a, there's like an editorial process and, we will often, it's much more concise now because we will end an episode and all of us will be like, right. that one section sucked. Like we might have to reconceptualize re that or, or whatever. But we still have a full editorial process. People listen and and give specific notes. And um, sometimes that means we, uh, you know, retrack portions of the show. And sometimes it means uh, everything was great. You know, thumbs up, green light. 
Peter, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Had a good time. I uh, I look forward to hearing your voice uh, the next time something uh, spicy happens at the Supreme Court, which usually <laughs> is sooner rather than later. Yeah, it shouldn't be long. That was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Peter. You can subscribe to 5v4 now from Prologue Projects. This episode was edited by Jackie Sajiko. The show notes are by Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Fox Media helps us make the show. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.